Please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 18. We are continuing our uh, five-part series. This is the third, uh, looking at a part of the Reformation called the Solas of the Reformation. We've um, spent two weeks there already. We looked at sola scriptura. Sola means alone. It's Latin. We looked at scripture alone. Last week, Matt Wiley preached through faith alone. Uh, We have, uh, let's see, what's the math? Three more weeks. We'll do grace alone this morning. Next week, Christ alone, and then for the glory of God alone. And so we have these five sermons to really highlight the fact that we are celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Reformation in 1517, where Martin Luther famously nailed his 95 theses to the the castle door at Wittenberg. And that's what we are looking at, um, where he really, for Martin Luther and for the world, in a way, freshly discovered the power of the gospel unleashed. And that's what we want to have happen in our hearts and happen in our church. A revival based on the fact that the gospel is so beautiful. Um, and we come into these, these middle three of the five solas and they can have some overlap. That's confusing. Faith and grace and Christ. And I want to kind of get, hint on or touch on those a little bit as we begin. Um, and it's, what's confusing is we, the t- concept of alone, right? Like if it's faith alone... And how is it grace alone? And how is it Christ alone? And I just want to clarify, I said this two weeks ago, the, the illustration, you call into the country club, you want to wear a tank top. And the, uh, the guy says, no, I'm sorry, it's collared shirts only, right? Okay, so I can't wear my tank top, I have to wear the collared shirt. But I am going to wear other garments as well. He just meant, as opposed to the tank top, it's this, not this. So when we look at each of these solas, we're looking at the juxtaposed to something else, right? So with faith, Matt explained how often uh, people would try to become, what, saved by works, right? And we're going to look at grace in Christ in the same way. Um, I do want to use an illustration. How would, I ju- how would I distinguish these three? It's very hard to do in a few seconds, but think of electricity as being, uh, here's the illustration. There's a plug on that wall over there. And if I go plug something in, that, that's the instrument, right? That's faith. Just the act of plugging in is faith. I'm trusting that there's some power source in that plug, right? Faith. But the actual electricity is Christ. That's the main thing. That's, the, that's what you need, right? You're after Christ. Faith is how I'm getting to him. Where is grace? Grace is the cost. Grace we're talking about in this context. What is the price for that? Okay, does that make sense? What is the cost for that? How costly is it? Um, and that's what we're going to try to unpack a little bit this morning. And what I want you to understand as we move into this passage, I'm trying to get us to stop thinking about our religion and our Christianity as sort of a card in our billfold. Like we're card-carrying Christians. I have this card. I'm a Christian. I'm a Protestant. Rather, what we're trying to recognize is we have this personal relationship with God. It's powerful. It's life-changing. And our goal as followers of Christ is to have a deeper and more satisfying walk with the Lord this side of heaven. And I believe that what will shake us in that process and help us grow in that is a better understanding of the absolute freeness of the gospel. Let's look at it this morning. So we'll start by looking at Matthew 18. The background of this quick story, it's it's a parable, is Peter is shocked at the thought of forgiveness. 
So Peter, thinking he's going to outdo everyone, asks the question. I mean, how many times do I have to do it? Like, seven? You know, it's that perfect question. I mean, that's way more than I really think it is, but I'm curious. I'm, I'm better than the other guys who would have said one, two, or three. I'm even using this biblical round number, seven, you know? And, uh, and Jesus looks at Peter and he says, I do not say to you seven, but 77 times. It, that's disruptive. That is mind-blowing for Peter. And, and the only reason it's not mind-blowing for you and I is because we've heard the story. But practically in our life, none of us forgive like that, right? And it's usually because most of us don't grasp grace like we should. So let's dive into the story that Jesus tells, starting in verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed 10,000 talents. The original audience would have immediately heard that number and known what it meant. So as a preacher, you want to do the whole trick where you wait till later to tell, you know how much that really is? But the original audience heard that number and would have been like, what? So I think you should have that experience as well. And I don't have a, I tried to do the calculator on my iPhone. It's, it's, if you look in your footnotes, a talent is a, you know, it's, it's 20 years of wages for a labor. And then they had 10,000 of those. So it's in the billions of dollars. Okay, that's, that's how they heard that. A servant owed billions of dollars. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what, he had, what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So all my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. Father, you are a forgiving king, and we do not accept it so often. We rely on our efforts. We, we somehow deep down still think in some strange way, and maybe not all the time, but at, at our weakest moments that we have to earn our righteousness. I pray this morning your gospel would be proclaimed. Your Holy Spirit would open the eyes of our hearts to hear the message of grace. Amen. Dan Allender, uh, I was at a conference, and he gave a story that I thought was pretty fitting uh, for this sermon because he, I guess he went to a country in Africa, and there was a, a lady who worked with him who was African that took him to this village or this town to this party. And the man that threw the party knew Dan Allender, but not really well, but wanted to really bless him. It was a great meal, a great evening. And later, she told him in private, she, this woman told Dan, 
you know that meal cost him like two months of wages. Something like that. And of course, Dan was immediately, like, like all of us, like, what? Like, and, and, and she could see the wheel spinning, and she said, you know what? You're not going to repay him. And he kind of stood back, and she said, I know what you're thinking. You think you need to go repay him. You're not going to repay him. And don't even try to do it slowly, like over a year or two. He'll know. He wanted to give you that food. He wanted to give you that party. We struggle to receive things for free. Now, I think every one of us would say, I like free. I mean, everyone raise our hand. Who wants a free whatever? Oh, I do. But what we usually mean is I want something without cost because maybe the company was foolish enough to think that was a good marketing technique or something like that. But when it really comes to, like, I have a need, and you come and provide for my need, I think most of us in our honest moments would say that is very, very uncomfortable. And and typically, I think the two things we try to do in those moments out of our flesh is, one, we start the the repayment process in our head. How am I going to repay? Right? Whether it's financial, whether it's something I do that's, can help this person later, maybe that they aren't good at, etc. If we have absolutely zero way to repay the person or the, or the entity, I think often we'll start to have thoughts of, they've got enough money. They can afford this. And we'll start to kind of, again, adjust the scales. It is a very hard thing to just simply receive something for free. And in our passage, we see this. We see a servant who, from all appearances, looks like he just got off with a great, gracious gift, but he can't receive it. And, and what I think Martin Luther got going, kind of re-sparked, it wasn't he that originated any stretch of the imagination, is this idea that grace is so free that it, it, you can't believe it without the Spirit. And so my hope this morning is that maybe we will grasp a little bit more of what it means to believe in the freeness of the gospel. And I want you to know something. I don't think this side of heaven you can fully grasp the gospel and how free it is. So it's important if you're in this audience that you don't think, I already know this. I've read the confession or whatever. I hope you'll join me with some humility to say, every morning I need to know freshly the freeness of grace. And so... The proposition to this discussion is this. To experience the love of your heavenly Father, you have to know the grace that he gives you. Okay? If you're trying to have closeness with God, but you're not grasping his grace, it'll be thwarted. Or, if you think you're getting grace, but you really have no care for being close with your heavenly Father, then you're not really after grace. It's the delight in the Father that makes the the, the gospel of grace so beautiful. So I'm hoping at the end of this discussion we'll delight in him more by understanding how gracious and free his grace has been to us. So, let's look at this uh, passage a little bit more closely. to See, the first thing we're going to look at is free grace. um, Free grace recognizes the debt. Okay? You are in debt. That's what this passage teaches. I mean, when Jesus chose the amount of money he chose to make this point, it's ridiculous. It's how in the world could a servant have spent billions of dollars? It's it's so far out of the realm of possibility. And yet, that is the reality of original sin. The Bible teaches in the garden, when Adam and Eve fell, 
they were completely and utterly separated from God. Death entered. And when that happened, their posterity, you and I, received original sin. And let me try to tell you something. It's really good news. Like, it's really good news that we have original sin. Now, that sounds strange. The reason it's good news is because it actually exists. If you've ever met someone who has a health condition and they can't find out what's causing it, telling them maybe it's just not as bad as they think isn't helpful. Maybe you're imagining things. Maybe it's just you should change a few dietary things. They want to know what is the underlying cause of this condition. And sometimes bad news is good news because at least now I named it and I know what it is. And so we come to sin, an original sin, and we have some historical debates. Augustine, who both Protestants and Catholics love to uh, hold up for various reasons, the Protestants love him because he agrees with original sin. And he debates with a man named Pelagius who thought two things. One, that, ba- that babies were born basically good, right? They weren't evil. And, and, the, and no, I sound mean. Oh, you think babies are evil? Okay. They thought, uh, let me just, just hear me out. And uh, basically a child, a human, could grow up and by seeing Jesus as a role model, figure out salvation by following the path of the role model. Now, if there's a Pelagian scholar in the, in the audience, you know, um, this is the dumbed-down version, all right? This is third grade. Augustine, and, but here's the other problem with Pelagius' thoughts. Part of his reasoning was the sin of Adam and Eve was not transferred to their offspring. Well, Augustine was reading Scripture and said that's impossible. We, the Scriptures are clear. Uh, we, we have all fallen short of the glory of God. We are sinners. And he sees it in his own life and recognizes that the only way to salvation is by grace alone. And it's beautiful. And it's radical. And I think this passage is Jesus saying the same thing. That our debt is, is so huge and so large that only grace that's free can heal the gap. Shane just talked about the, the, the Grand Canyon. You can't get across the chasm. Now, here's the rub. I think for most of us in the, in, the, in the modern Protestant church, we all would say, I get that. I bet there's not one person in this room who would say, no, 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 I think I'm saved by works. Here's our problem. We're fine with agreeing that grace is free at the moment of conversion, whenever that was in your life where I believe we begin to struggle and why this is such an important topic is we subtly, with subtleness, subtly, begin to think that now that I'm a Christian, it really is up to me. It really is my fruit that will reveal whether or not I'm a Christian, right? Now, the truth is, the reason that's hard is because it's true. I mean, the Bible, you know, faith without works is dead. That true faith produces true works. So you can't go around acting like, well, I believe in Jesus and I do whatever I want to. That's called antinomianism, right? That's not an option. But on the other hand, the other side of that is legalism, where I begin to live my life thinking, okay, I know I'm saved by grace, but now I need all of this proof of that grace. And this was actually an issue that came into the church through Augustine. Augustine... Augustine, however you want to say his name, he, here's where he veered from where Protestants later 
were set through Luther and the, and the other reformers, he began to, to teach infused righteousness. See, Reformed theology teaches that you have imputed righteousness. I know these are weird words. What's the difference? Well, this, this man who couldn't pay this debt was credited of having paid the debt. And we would go further to say, in Christianity, you're also credited with righteousness. Like, not just the debt being removed, but all of Jesus' beautiful works are put on your ledger. But we would not say, and therefore you now are infused with that actual righteousness. So I walk away from my conversion, and I'm just, I'm awesome. I'm like immediately perfect. Now, the doctrine of infused righteousness would never say that either. They would never say you are immediately or ever made perfect, but there is this teaching that your good works, which come from Christ, can have merit later in your Christian life. And that God, seeing the merit, can apply it at the moment of conversion. Does that make sense? It's, it's hard to grasp, but here's the problem. It, it, paid, it moved into Presbyterianism into Scotland. In the 1700s, there's a debate over the marrow of modern divinity. And this is a book written in 1645, discovered by a pastor in the 1700s, and it lit up his ministry because what he learned, or relearned, was that grace was free. And what he realized he had been doing to his congregation was teaching that you're really saved by grace, but he was emphasizing the works that come from grace. And that became a way to add in to grace. And so that became a controversy that um, never was fully resolved, but it's called the Marrow Controversy. And the book, if you want to read it, it's a fascinating book, The Whole Christ by Sinclair Ferguson. Highly recommend it. And the reason, and the subtitle is Legalism, Antinomianism, and Gospel Assurance. Why it still matters. And here's why it matters. If your Christian life is stalled out in any way, it's because you don't believe that grace was free. Somewhere, somehow, you are believing that you have to do your own righteousness. You're believing that it's up to you to figure out how you're going to get better and grow. I want to draw us back to this passage. And by the way, it's a parable. Okay? This parable teaches that grace changes your behavior. Does it not? So we do believe that. This parable, I mean, I know some of you are saying, like, Ryan, the guy in the parable, the, very, the whole idea behind the parable is he didn't accept the freeness and, the, and it didn't lead to fruit, and that's why he was condemned, right? And so what's going on in this parable? Let's, let's kind of unpack it a little bit more. Here's a man that has been told, he's just living out his life, he knows he has this debt, and one day the king taps him on the shoulder and says, it's time to pay up. And he shows up to pay. And what does he say? He pleads, right? Have patience with me, verse 26, and I will pay you everything. Right? So that's not a very good beginning, is it? Four billion dollars, you make ten dollars an hour. It just sounds like a, a foolish thing to say. And so right from the beginning, he did not grasp the graciousness of the offer, or the reality of the offer. Now, to make matters worse, um, I, 
most people think, and I, until like about three days ago, I would have said, then he goes out and asks for money from someone that owes him money because he wanted to, hey, my account's been covered. I, I go out and get this money, and now I've got money in the bank. I mean, I want to have a positive trend, right? It's very possible that that's what's going on. But I think it's very possible something else is happening. I think it's very possible that when he was told your debt is canceled and he leaves the room, he doesn't believe it. In fact, in this morning's discussion in our Grace 101, one of the, the participants said, I struggle to believe grace is always free. It sounds great. It sounds amazing. But sometimes I get outside of, say, that moment where it was making sense, and I, my heart starts to question that. And I have a feeling this guy's thinking, that king's going to come knocking again. I better start collecting my debt. So he went out to do the very thing. And the reason the king is completely and utterly shocked is because this man not didn't obey better because of the gift he was given, but that he never fully grasped the gift at all. He didn't believe it. It was as if it never happened. In the king's mind, this guy is zeroed out. In the guy's mind, I'm still a debtor, and I've got to go do my effort and my work. Is that something you struggle with? How do you feel God feels about you? Like one of my favorite questions to ask people, and it's a hard one to answer, is how do you feel like God views you? Like right now, you're sitting, if I had a mic and I could just pop into the middle of your day, you're at work, maybe you do this at work, and there I am with my mic, how does God view you? What do you answer? I asked the question this morning, and what most people do when, is, is they kind of do the calculation, go back to the scripture, and they come back and say something like, I think God loves me. God loves me, right? It's in the Bible. I want you to think about the person who loves you the most right now. Who, if you, I hope everyone in here has that person, even if they've passed on. Think about that, that relationship. It could be a grandma, a spouse, a child. They, they love you. You could do no wrong, okay? And I walk up and say, how does Mammy, or whatever the person is, think of you? And you would immediately go, oh, she loves me. There would be no calculations thinking and processing, it would be an immediate, visceral response. They delight in me. They care for me. And you would also, ironically, not ironically, you would not think because of what I've done for them. It would just be this, just by virtue of being born, this person who had been alive a lot longer than me loved me, and no matter what I did, that devotion and love was cast on me, and I love that. God loves you. Does that feel scandalous? God the Father loves you. That is in this passage. Um, well, excuse me. That, let me back up. Maybe it's, it's, it's hard to find it in this passage. But it is in this passage. Where? This word pity. Again, if you said, Ryan, before I started looking at this passage for this, tech, for this sermon, I would have said the guy asked for forgiveness, for mercy, and then the king said, okay, something like that. I'll, forg I'll forgive the debt. The guy is begging to, get, to be able to pay it off. He's in the middle of almost blasphemy in a way, like, like you could ever do this? And the king has pity on him. 
And the word there for pity, uh, it has to do with like a, like a guttural feeling. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a bodily feeling of care. Jesus, all through the Gospels, has compassion. It's the same Greek word on, on the crowds. He has compassion on the needy. He cares. Have you ever looked at someone and just thought, I just I care for that person. I love them. That's how the king views this servant. But we know from all of Scripture that God cares for his children. So going back to the whole Christ, here's my story. Um, I'd gone through sonship. I'd done a lot of discipleship stuff. I believed the gospel. I passed exams, right, rigorous exams to become a pastor. And I'm reading the book, The Whole Christ. This has been a year or two ago. And I, I remember asking somebody once at seminary, like, I, I, I've always kind of struggled with the thought that God only loves me because of Jesus. Have you ever thought that? That God the Father loves you, but only because of Jesus. Have you ever had that thought? I have. You can say, well, Ryan, you were raised in a home without a father. I can see psychologically how that happened. And I'll say guilty. But nonetheless, that was my underlying belief. Like, I just felt that way. Um, and along with people who I've talked to, uh, they answered the question, how does God view you? I would have said this. He tolerates me. He, he He's not going to cast me out, but he doesn't really, he's not pumped up that I'm in. You know, just, Jesus, he's with you, come on in. Kind of like this, you know, you're with Jesus. So we get this idea that Jesus is lovely and, and glorious, but somewhere for me, in my theology, the Father tolerated me. And it was through reading, rereading Scripture and processing the Gospel that it's the Father who sent Jesus to rescue me. It's the Father who sent Jesus to you. And, and I just, my, my hope and my prayer this morning is that you will begin to rest in the fact that God the Father loves you and delights in you and rejoices over you with singing and not because of anything you will do later. Right? I have four children. I love them. And I am, you know, the scripture if a father, you know, who's evil would not give a snake, right? I mean, I'm, I'm a sinner. And yet I love my children, and it's never because of anything they do. My son, Grayson, plays golf. He'll score bad, and he'll, you can just tell he wants to, I'm like, I don't care. I mean, I want you to do well, but that doesn't change my feeling about you. Or if a child misbehaves, well, that kind of puts you at the bottom of the four. Coleman, have I ever said that to you? Of course not. He's usually around number... No, I'm kidding. <laughs> a parent loves a child because of their relationship. And anything else is there as a way of growing and discipling and nurturing, right? God loves you because you are his child from all of eternity. And that is true of you if you are in Christ. And the worst thing you can do, and I can do to our faith, is begin to add this, this, well, but I need works to kind of prove that. Now let me be clear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that we should not look for fruit. Right? But why are we looking for fruit? We're not looking for fruit to prove God's love. We're looking for fruit to bring glory to God. 
which will be our last sermon. We're looking for fruit to say, if I've been forgiven, then this is what's going to be produced. And how does that happen? Here's how it happens. God changes, free grace changes the rules. When the man goes to the king and owes him money, he owes, again, billions of dollars, it's as if the king said, I want you to take every economic term you've ever heard of or thought of and throw it out the window. That is no longer a reality for you anymore. Your, your world has just changed. You see this in Galatians. Paul tells both the Jews, the Judaizers that have come in, and those that were raised in the pagan culture, that they were both living according to elemental principles, principles of, of the world for their identity markers. And Paul says the gospel came, Jesus came, and those are gone. The prison door is now open. Those markers are gone. So, what we make the mistake of is the prison door is open. We have Christ. We believe in him. But we just keep sitting in the prison. Every now and then we walk out for a moment. Take a breath. We feel the beauty. And then we retreat back into the cell. The door's open. But it's scary out there. You know why? Because all the things you rely on for your identity become rubbish. And that's important, isn't it? That's the only way true life in Christ will ever take root and, and grow you is if you can stop measuring yourself by all this stuff. Right? What is the stuff you measure yourself by? We are, you guys are beautiful people. You're talented people. You're educated. You're successful. And so it's very, very hard for you to believe this gospel. And it's very hard for me, not for those same reasons. But it's very hard when things seem to be going well to believe that our good works don't count anymore. Because kind of like we like them. We sort of like the fact that that guy owes us, you know, what's, what's, he owes a few, like a year's wages. We like that we have that debt owed to us. But we forget that we also owe $4 billion. We've got to quit living according to that measurement system. Right? So, practically speaking, how do you do that? You have got to be ruthlessly honest before the Lord about all the righteous things you cling to. What is your righteousness? What are the markers you cling to? What are you proud of? And I mean in a bold act of self-denial, bringing that before Jesus and saying, Lord, all of these are rubbish because of the cross and because of what you've done, because of grace. Grace has saved you. It was totally free. But now the rules have changed, and you no longer live according to those methods. Let's pray. Father, we love the idea of free things, but yet when it comes to salvation, our spirit loves it, the spirit you place in our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. But our flesh is right there, whispering the words that Satan whispered to Adam and Eve. Be careful. God may cut you out. He may not be as good as you think. Those are rubbish. Father, forgive us for our unbelief. Let us live out of the spirit you've given us. Father, if there is any unbeliever in the room, I pray as we move toward, our, toward the end of this service, they would just, their eyes would be open to the longing for the gospel, the freeness of the love of God through Christ. In your name we pray. Amen.